I've heard about you. What have you heard, Shane? I've heard that you're a low-down Yankee liar. The cowboy. What figure could more perfectly encapsulate the American sense of what a man should really be? Except that it doesn't. Actual historical cowboys, as opposed to those on the silver screen, were nothing like the image that we have of them today. The rugged, individualist, Marlboro man tough guy that saves the day, gets the girl, and ultimately rides off into the sunset alone. That man is a myth. And the myth of the manly cowboy is well summed up by historian Laura Woodworth Ney in describing the 1953 Western film Shane, from which we just heard an audio clip. She summarizes the film... A lone cowboy rides into the setting sun, leaving behind a white woman grateful for his aid, but sorry to see him go. Now, the same words could, of course, sum up pretty much any number of John Wayne westerns or Louis L'Amour novels, which have shaped so much of the American sense of manliness. But the thing is, if you were to read that description to an actual 19th century cowboy, they wouldn't recognize themselves in it. The real cowboy, or cowhand, cowpoke, or cowpuncher, as he, or sometimes she, was called, would say that it's a bunch of horse feathers. The idea that the cowboy was a loner, always riding off into the setting sun, and that he was a heartthrob, leaving behind some woman longing with desire, well, it's good cinema, but it's just total bosh. First, Cowboys were not loners. As we'll see today, they were closer to communalists, riding together, working together, drinking together, and even bunking together. And second, cowboys were not heartthrobs. As we'll also see, they were pretty much low-status chumps on the totem pole of 19th century masculinity who struggled to turn up proper ladies' glance. And we'll also see how they rebelled against that system of masculinity and found companionship and sometimes fulfillment in their own way. So what were cowboys really like? And what was their experience of masculinity? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our patron Stuart Hall for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank Gregory Hinton and the Autry Museum for special help in the preparation of this episode. Today begins our series on the Wild West, and this is going to be a multi-part series. I'm not sure how many parts right now, but we're going to dive deep and look at the West from multiple perspectives, from male and female, straight and queer, white, black, and Native American, and a whole lot more, too. And also, I have to say, by the way, folks, this is going to be the last series on this show, at least for a while. I've been, frankly, struggling to keep up things have finally kind of come to a head and something's got to give. So, you know, we might have to take a little bit of a break after this, but I'll say this much. This is episode 58, and that's way farther than I ever thought that we would get with this podcast. So 
Thank you so much to you, the listener. Thank you to my patrons and everyone who has written in, people I've done portraits for. You are really what has kept me going through all these episodes, and it's you who will keep me going even as I take this break. So thank you. Now, with that out of the way, let's make this a series to remember. Let's talk cowboys. We've been hornswoggled, boys. But by the end of this episode, we'll get to the truth. Sound as a goose. Hornswoggle. To bamboozle or deceive someone. Sound as a goose. Staunch. Reliable. True. That's real cowboy lingo, by the way, there. So far as historians can tell, anyway. Earlier, we also heard horse feathers, meaning silliness, and bosh, meaning nonsense. I've got tons of authentic frontier slang just waiting for you here, and I will try to call it out when I use it. Okay, so today we are talking about the historical figure that lies at the heart of American masculinity. Ever since Frederick Jackson Turner proposed in 1893 that American democracy was born on the frontier and indelibly shaped by it, the cowboy has been associated with what is most truly American, and consequently, the cowboy also lies at the heart of American masculinity. The notion of what a real man, quote-unquote, should be like. Now, of course, many, myself included, may have complicated feelings about that, and depending on your race, ethnicity, gender, and other factors, those feelings may be quite complex indeed. Nevertheless, it remains crucial to the way that we American men define ourselves as freedom-loving, you know, rugged individualists who should supposedly all be able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps if only we're man enough to try. You know, whether that's actually the case is a whole other question. But that is what's present there in American culture for all of us to have to grapple with and react against. And yet, there is a disconnect between that cowboy mythos that informs our masculinity and the actual historical cowboy who experienced manhood in a very different way. And today, we're going to see that specifically in the image of the cowboy as a loner and a heartthrob. But first, let's just get some basic context. What exactly is a cowboy, anyway? Well, in the movies, cowboy is a loose description for pretty much any kind of action hero in the Wild West. But I want to get much more specific than that. See, in contrast, the historical figure was specifically an animal handler who worked with cattle, mainly from horseback, driving herds over open range or across family ranches, and who may have performed other ranch-related jobs as well. Now, sometimes the cowboy wasn't a boy at all, but rather a cowgirl. Now, at the risk of getting ahead of myself a bit here, this is an episode mainly about men, but I want to address women for a second here because it's very interesting. I'm going to stick with the term cowboy because... First of all, cowgirl wasn't used until in 1905 or later. And secondly, it was such a highly gendered masculine profession that the women who did enter it, as historian D. Garceau puts it, were actually almost kind of viewed as quasi-men. For example, Texas cowboy C.L. Sonicson writes that a few ranch women liked 
to get out and work stock once in a while just for the fun of it. But he hastens to add that these tomboys, as he calls them, were exceptional. And he adds, The neighbors of Bob Tisdale speak with respect of his daughter, Mike, who helps on roundups and takes her part with the best of the male workers. A girl like her is the exception in cattle country, however. Now it's notable that the girl is given the male moniker, Mike. It's almost as if working in that highly gendered space requires her to be seen as a boy. And this pattern is reinforced in the story of Amy and Elsie Cooksley, two women who rode herd after emigrating to the West from England in 1914. Amy writes, We were holding herd one time while half the men had their dinner. We saw a lady and her driver drive up to the wagon for dinner. Our relief came out and told us we could go eat. One of the fellers said, No way! I'm not going in there and eat with those women. I don't mind Amy and Elsie and the rest of the boys, but I'm not going in there with those women. Here we see that the two girls are clearly marked as part of the rest of the boys and excluded from those women. The male space of cattle work, as Garceau notes, seems to have rubbed off on them to such a point that they are no longer really seen as women, but rather as quasi-men. So I want to acknowledge right at the outset here that cowboys were not always male, but that it was such a male-gendered space that the word cowboy actually feels more appropriate. It actually calls out that extreme gender-codedness of the trade. Nevertheless, if you want a more neutral term, you could use cowhand, cowpoke, or cowpuncher, which were all popular at the time. Now, cowboy-like figures have existed in many parts of the world, including Argentina and Australia, not to mention Canada and Mexico. But since we are talking about American masculinity specifically today, we are going to focus mainly on the American West, that is to say, the frontier territories of these United States. Now, Turner's thesis that American democracy was born on the frontier turns on the image of the open wilderness, vast and empty, you know, those stunning landscapes and vistas that you see in the movies. It gives the impression of a landscape that just was free for the taking for anyone man enough, quote unquote, to make something of it. Now, of course, this land was anything but free. These were the traditional homelands of the Dakota, the Navajo, the Cheyenne, the Ute, the Zuni, and so many other tribes. But the Native American population had been decimated by centuries of disease and violence at the hands of advancing white settlers. And historian Russell Thornton estimates that by the opening of the 19th century, the Native population had been so reduced that there was barely 600,000 persons of Native descent in the West. And further, that number fell to as little as 250,000 by the close of the century. So the wilderness wasn't empty, but rather emptied by white settlers. Nevertheless, the image of the empty wilderness free for the taking continues to inform the American ideal of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, making something of yourself just as the frontier folk made something of the land. And that frontier process goes all the way back to the earliest days of the colonies. But the cowboy profession didn't really emerge until about the mid-19th century. Before that, much of the skills that would become the cowboy's skill set 
were developed in northern Mexico by the vaquero, sort of a precursor and parallel to the cowboy. And they built on traditions going all the way back to the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. Now, the skills of the vaquero were picked up by settlers in the American West and applied to the emerging cattle industry in Texas and elsewhere. The heyday of the American cowboy is mainly associated with the time span from the end of the American Civil War in 1865 to the official closing of the frontier by the U.S. Census Bureau in 1890, with a twilight extending all the way into the, about the 1920s or so. And it is worth noting that this time span, covering the latter half of the 19th century, was the same as the Victorian period. And this is key to understanding the masculinity of the historical cowboy. See, it's easy for us today to forget that Buffalo Bill and Charles Dickens inhabited one in the same world. But actual cowboys didn't forget it. They felt it acutely because, see, in Dickens' world, cowboys were low-status chumps. The ideal Victorian man was refined, genteel, and married, none of which described the typical cowboy. Marriage in particular was a point of masculine resentment here. See, in the Victorian era, marriage was a marker of status, and it meant that you had made it to full manhood and were establishing yourself as a householder and a member of the community. But the cowboy had little chance at marriage, with little financial means with which to attract a wife, and few proper quote-unquote ladies around on the frontier for him to attract anyway, well, he felt kind of emasculated under this Victorian regime. He was stuck between hay and grass, as they said. Between hay and grass, neither a man nor a boy. So no matter how old the cowboy got, he was just not quite grown up. He was almost like a guy still living in his parents' basement when he's 40, you know? <laughs> and, and that's emasculating. That was a point of resentment for cowboys. That's the kind of questionable masculinity that cowboys faced in their own day. And as we will see, they ended up rebelling against that system and forming their own alternative culture, almost a counterculture that fulfilled their needs and created their own masculinity. So that is the basic broad context of what cowboys were actually like on the 19th century American frontier. Okay, so now we can zoom in on our two particular features of the cowboy that we're focusing on today. The two features as depicted in cinema, namely the cowboy as loner and the cowboy as heartthrob. We'll take them one at a time and we will see how they stack up against the actual historical cowboy's situation. So first, the cowboy as a loner. And this is highlighted right there in the very first phrase of Woodworth Ney's description of the movie Shane. A lone cowboy. A lone cowboy. That phrase right there already speaks volumes. It's all you really need to say to conjure the very root of American masculinity, rugged individualism. A loner, a man who don't need no help from nobody, who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and succeeds all on his own, whose individual freedom is unquestionable, don't tread on me, that is what a man is supposed to be. 
Well, maybe, but it ain't what an actual historical cowboy was like, I'll tell you that much. So, on the contrary, cowboys were anything but loners. The land may have been harsh and unforgiving, but that's not the reason for their self-reliance. Rather, that's the reason why they were not loners. You had to rely on others to survive in a place like that. And when there are so few others to rely on, well, you got real close to each other. Out on the range, cowboys did everything together. They drove herd together, they ate around the campfire together, they kept each other company, they told stories to each other, they went into town together, and they drank together. As historian D. Garceau puts it, Unlike John Wayne and his mythic forebears, cowboys were not stoic individualists. Rather, the record is poignant with their need for human companionship. Cowboys did everything together, and they even bunked together. That's right, bunked together. Garceau tells us, Bunkies were necessary to survive cold nights on the range, where one slept in tents or under the open sky. The physical warmth of one's sleeping partner could make all the difference between freezing and survival, between sleeplessness and comfort. As range cowboy Andy Adams described it, the men usually bunked in pairs. Since cowboys took turns riding night guard, it made sense for those on the same shift to sleep together. And as Andy Adams explained, this was much better than splitting bedfellows and having them annoy each other by going out and returning from guard separately. So there you have it. Bunkies were necessary for cowboys to survive. And the stories that cowboys told about bunkies could be both humorous and poignant. Garceau quotes several of them. For example, Andy Adams wrote that his bunkie, Paul Priest, could use the poorest judgment in selecting a bedground for our blankets. But he added that he always talked and told stories to me until I fell asleep. And another cowboy, Con Price of the Dakota Territory, related a story of one cowboy's bunkie who had a habit of taking a chew of tobacco in the middle of the night, and as this fellow told it, he would spit straight up, and it would fall on my face when I was asleep. <laughs> and finally, Con Price tells us of his own bunkie, a 55-year-old cowboy that they called Grandpa. Between the two of us, we didn't have bedding enough to pad a crutch, Grandpa was very cranky and was always giving me the devil for pulling the covers off of him. He would lay and moan all night, and every time I would roll over, he would holler and cuss me. But then when it came time for Grandpa to leave, Price says, He came around to bid me goodbye and apologized for being so cranky. He said, You know, I've been sick and froze ever since I've been with this outfit, but I'm going to miss you when I go home. So there you see, there could be annoyance between bunkies, but also genuine affection and friendship between them. As Garceau describes them, bunkies were family, the cowboys' alternative family adapted to the trail drive. So there you go. Cowboys were not individualists. They lived closely with others. They relied on them and could actually even be quite affectionate toward them. Now, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. You're wondering, how often did these bunky relationships go, you know, beyond family and friendship into something more? I mean, are we talking about a Brokeback Mountain situation here? And well, the answer is, that's pretty difficult to suss out. And I tried really hard, let me tell you folks, to find reports of diaries or, you know, anecdotes or anything showing same-sex love among cowboys. And 
there's just frankly not a whole lot out there that's actually made it into the record. Perhaps it's because the population was sparse, literacy was low, and so it just doesn't turn up in the record. I can only speculate on the reason, but it was very difficult to find any actual hard evidence, much less a fun story to share with you folks. If you do widen the scope a little beyond the heyday of the cowboy proper, things start to show up a little bit. Historian William Benison has a whole book called Beyond Male-Male Intimacy, which catalogs same-sex love between men across several centuries of the American frontier. And the Autry Museum ran a whole exhibit called Out West, which was curated by Gregory Hinton, which focused on alternative sexualities on the frontier. And in that exhibit, they displayed a pair of wooden chairs carved in a buffalo theme, and the history behind those chairs is actually rather revealing. They were commissioned by the Scotsman William Drubbund Stewart, who traveled in the American West extensively in the 1830s, so before the American Civil War, but were close to the heyday of the cowboy. There he met a French-Canadian by the name of Antoine Clément, who became his lover. And the chairs commemorated his time in America, and no doubt also his time with Clément. So yeah, some monkeys might have been friends with benefits, as we might say today. But other than a few isolated incidents like that, the record is surprisingly silent. As Garceau points out, homoeroticism in actual cowboy writing is rare. And Garceau believes that reading sexuality into stories of bunkies is revisionist, applying a 21st century lens to a quite commonplace 19th century straight male behavior. Then again, the opposite might also be true at the very same time. Historian William Benison believes that it is also off the mark to explain away all such behavior as mere heterosexual chumminess. Some of it may well have been sexual. Now, as for me, for what it's worth, I suspect that, yeah, most bunkies were probably just platonic friends. But it would be silly for us to think that none of them were lovers. There were men who loved other men in every place and time, and the American frontier was no exception. The question is just how many and which ones. Also, we do have to remember that almost no one on the frontier had ever even heard of the concept of homosexuality. See, that was just starting to be formulated over in Germany and England in the late 19th century. Whereas the American frontier was still solidly adhering to the old-style notion that same-sex love was an act, not an orientation. If you messed around with your bunkie, it didn't necessarily cause you to rethink who you were. I mean, it was considered sodomy, and it did go against the dictates of the church, but it was not a matter of identity. So to wonder about homosexual cowboys back in the day, well, is kind of to put the question in a different way than the cowboys themselves would have put it, those who dallied with other men would have framed things not as we are gay cowboys, but rather something like, well, you know, some nights get lonely out there on the range, and you know, it's just something that you do. That's the way they would have thought about it at the time. But to put the question of sexuality aside for the moment, the practice of bunkies does show vividly how much cowboys relied on each other, both for survival and for companionship. They were not the classic rugged individualist who don't need no help from nobody. On the contrary, they were practically communalists because they had to be. Surviving on your own in a place like that was not easy. You had to rely on each other 
and that's what they did. Yet the manly cowboy of cinema and of American masculinity remains obstinately individualistic. It's depicted as if survival in the wilderness demands such self-reliance, like you either just sink or swim. But in fact, the truth was, it demanded the opposite, communal reliance on each other. Now that's not the only way in which cowboys needed others. And this brings me to the second part of our analysis of the silver screen wrangler versus the actual cowboy, the cowboy as heartthrob. What was the cowboy's relationship to women actually like? And if, as we've heard, he was the low man on the Victorian totem pole who struggled to turn up proper quote-unquote ladies' glance, well then how did he find companionship and fulfillment? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but first we will take a short break and we'll be back after this. California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. And now, the History of Sex presents this. This message is brought to you by the letter C. Hey Bert. Bert, are you awake? Hey Bert. Bert! What? What? <laughs> Where am I? We're in the bunkhouse, remember? We're bunkies out on the range. Oh yeah, Ernie. I, I just drove the herd 25 miles. I need my sleep. Oh, sorry, Bert. Good night. Good night, Ernie. Hey, Bert. What? Do you think we'll ever get married? You know, settle down. Become real men. Do you think we'll ever do that, Bert? I don't know, Ernie. Hey, Bert. What? You think I'm a loner? Loners are ace high. Ace high. First class. Respect it. Sure, Ernie. You're a loner. You're the lonerest loner there ever was. You're the lone ranger. Now go to sleep. See, I don't think I am a loner. You know why, Bert? Because you're my friend. And I don't mind if I'm not ace high, because I have a friend. And you know what that makes me want to do, Bert? It makes you want to go to sleep? No, Bert. It makes me want to play my harmonica. All right, we're back. Now let's get to the second part of our comparison, the cowboy as heartthrob. On the big screen, the cowboy is almost always charged with sexual mystery, always the object of erotic longing by some supporting female character. The film Shane, for example, boils with tension as the cowboy Shane arrives at a family ranch and there is just obvious chemistry between him and the wife, which leads the viewer to wonder whether he and her husband 
will eventually come to blows. It's fantastic cinema, but it's total burrow milk. Burrow milk. Nonsense. Now this setup is common in westerns, and the message to American male youth is clear. Embody this cowboy ideal, and women will want you. Well, unfortunately, when you look at the actual people who literally embodied cowboys in history, that's total burrow milk. See, this was not at all the experience of the typical 19th century cowboy. Quite to the contrary, actual cowboys struggled to turn the heads of proper quote-unquote ladies if they cut a rusty, cut a rusty, to court a lady. They were more than likely to get the mitten, get the mitten, to be rejected. And we can see this summed up quite pointedly in the words of cowboy Bruce Sieberts, who rode herd from the 1890s through the 1920s. In other words, from the tail end of the cowboy era and into the decades when cowboys were beginning to become romanticized. He says, I had a liking for the girls, but when I went into town with my rough clothes on, they wouldn't pay any attention to me. Owen Wister hadn't yet written his book The Virginian, so we cowhands did not know we were so strong and glamorous as we were after people read that book. <laughs> well, there you have it. As Siebert so wryly points out, the sexually charged cowboy is pure romanticism. Before the publication of The Virginian, which was hailed as the first true fictional Western novel, there were like dime novels by like Erasmus Beadle, for example, before that. This was the first proper novel, I guess, you know, that paved the way for Zane Grey, Louis L'Amour, and so many others. Anyway, before the publication of this novel, The Virginian, girls wouldn't give a second glance to real cowboys like Bruce Sieberts. Because, as we've seen, they were low men on the totem pole of Victorian masculinity. They had poor prospects for marriage, and there was something almost shameful about being an adult male and unmarried at that time. It suggested that you lacked the means to establish a household, and it also meant that you lacked the civilizing, quote-unquote, influence of a domestic female in your life. That's how they saw it at the time. Men tamed the wilderness, but women tamed the men. Just a curiosity of the mindset at that time. So you wanted to marry and establish yourself in order to be fully recognized as an adult and to be seen not as some like wild man who was unpredictable, but as someone that you could deal with who was tamed, quote unquote, and who could be a pillar of the community. But for the cowboy, well, that often just wasn't possible. And in addition to the stigma of being unmarried, the cowboy also took a hit from his line of work. See, cattle handling was relatively low pay and transitory work. And consequently, he was seen as something kind of like a migrant worker almost. Cowboys were seen as rough, unsettled vagabonds with little in the way of fortune or marital prospects. As Garceau describes them, cowboys were transient workers, skilled but cash poor. In the late Victorian mind, cowboys were drifters, morally suspect, and socially crude. So far from being the object of every woman's longings, the real cowboy was frankly kind of a chump. Cowboys were not hotties, not at the time. The idea that he would ride through town and all the women would have to air out their drawers afterward is just downright laughable. That wasn't at all how it was. The real cowboy struggled to turn a woman's glance and felt himself less of a man because of it. 
Yet that doesn't mean that he had no relationships at all with women. He had plenty, just not the kind that fit the ideal of marriage to that proper Victorian-style lady. So who did he get with? Well, you know the cinematic image of the cowboy stumbling into a brothel and having a hog-killing good time? Hog-killing good time! A real good time! Well, that wasn't that far off the mark. Many of the women who were on the frontier, especially in the early eras, were often prostitutes, and there was plenty of pay-to-play sex going on. Yet even that was not quite how we see in the movies. Truth be told, quite often, the relationship between cowboys and prostitutes was complex, tender even, and often tried to replicate the Victorian ideal of marriage, if only as a fantasy. A surprising amount of cowboys and prostitutes actually formed lasting relationships, what Garceau calls fictive marriages. And these would last longer than one night, shorter than a lifetime. And they would reproduce the trappings of traditional marriage. As cowboy Teddy Blue Abbott puts it, We all had our favorites after we got acquainted. We'd go into town and marry a girl for a week and take her to breakfast and dinner and supper and be with her all the time. Now the fact that Abbott used that word marry and enumerates activities that were completely superfluous to sex highlights the longing that cowboys had for more than just mere erotic pleasure. Many of them longed for lasting companionship. So far from indulgent one-night wham-bam thank you ma'ams, Cowboys and prostitutes frequently found themselves bound up in relationships that could be tender, even loving. As Garceau notes, some were in fact soft down on each other, soft down on to be in love, and did in fact jump the broom, jump the broom to get married. Many of them actually fell in love and legally wed, you know, thumbing the Victorian snobbery about proper ladies and gents, in favor of a bond that fit their lived realities better. They didn't care if it was according to Hoyle. According to Hoyle, correct, by the book. And you know, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense that cowboys and prostitutes would get each other, because they shared a lot more in common than you might think on first glance. Now that we know that real cowboys were seen as low-status drifters in their day, it makes sense why they found in prostitutes kindred spirits. Garceau writes, Sharing outsider status as socially marginal figures, range cowboys and prostitutes developed a subculture of mutual aid and friendship. In other words, they recognized in each other a common hardship and together gave a rebellious middle finger to the whole Victorian system. And another thing that they shared in common was a nomadic lifestyle. Cowboys, particularly in the early years when herds would be driven miles and miles across open country, drifted from town to town along the drive. And you never think about it, but so too would prostitutes. See, frequently, they would keep up with the drive, working in establishments just for short stints along the way before moving on to the next town because, you know, they went where the work was. And so they were able to maintain longer-term relationships with their clients than, you know, you otherwise might suspect. So cowboys and prostitutes were like in their nomadic lifestyle as well. And this commonality was apparently strong enough to overcome the tendency to see sex workers as less than persons, as related by Teddy Blue Abbott. In Miles City that summer, 
I found a lot of new friends and some old ones. There was girls there that I had seen a lot of different places along the trail. I used to talk to those girls, and they would tell me a lot of stuff, and they were human too. Now that last phrase, and they were human too, that strikes me. Because that suggests growth and maturation achieved through the cowboy lifestyle along the trail. See, much like today, Victorian culture relegated sex workers to the lowest rungs of the social ladder, though not quite so low as women who used contraception. See our episode, Victorian Secret Vice in the Victorian Era, for more on that. But they were low, you know, the lowest rungs of the social ladder. So it came as a shock to Teddy Blue Abbott to discover that the prostitutes that he encountered along the trail had feelings, struggles, aspirations, you know, just like anyone else. They were human too, in his words. And that, for him, created a bond. Now, the bond between cowboys and sex workers went further still, even into the realm of economic mutual support. Far beyond the standard quid pro quo of sex work, they would sometimes extend credit to each other, believe it or not. For example, Teddy Blue Abbott relates, In the spring, when a fellow was hired, he would go to his girl and say, I've got a job, but my bed's in soak, or his saddle, or his six-shooter, or his horse. And she would lend him the money to get it back, and he would pay her at the end of the month. And this credit also went the other way as well. There was a girl called Eddie that I took on after my pal Lily Davis left. She, meaning Eddie, had just landed in Lincoln and didn't have any good clothes. I had money, and I staked her an outfit. She paid it back eventually. So it turns out that cowboys and prostitutes served almost like banks for each other, lending credit when they were down on the blanket. Down to the blanket, broke, out of money. And this shows yet again that cowboys were hardly fine catches in the Victorian mindset, but nevertheless they found companionship among those who were in similar straits. You know, cowboys were not the sex symbols of Western movies, much less the hunks of bodice ripper novels, but they were men with needs, both sexual and emotional, and they often found fulfillment in the arms of those who were most like them. In this case, sex workers. So the cowboy had a special affinity for prostitutes, not just because he could have a hog killing good time with them, but also because they had more in common than you ever probably thought. But I don't want to give the impression that cowboys only consorted with prostitutes. Of course not. As the frontier years wore on, more and more women moved west, including what society considered proper ladies. And cowboys did sometimes marry. When they did, that was really their ticket to rising social status within the mores of the day. However, in those early years when that was more difficult, and in the later years to some extent too, cowboys really began to throw off the shackles of Victorian masculinity ideals and form an alternative culture, almost a counterculture, that met their needs better. So, by way of conclusion here, that is the last thing that I want to talk about today, the cowboy's alternative masculinity. On the frontier, excluded from traditional masculinity, cowboys began to define themselves in contrast to that masculinity. 
whereas the Victorian man was meant to be controlled and temperate in his passions. Cowboys were free and indulgent. They embraced the world of the rowdy-dowdy. Rowdy-dow, trashy, vulgar. Cowboy Teddy Blue Abbott, who's our real informant here today, describes his behavior at brothels. I suppose those things would shock a lot of respectable people, but we wasn't respectable, and we didn't pretend to be, which is the only way we was different from some others. Now you can hear the resentment and the accusation of hypocrisy in those words. Abbott acknowledged that he and his fellows weren't respectable men, and he portrays himself and them as in some ways better, or at least more honest, you know, not feigning virtue, but openly embracing that so-called vice. At the same time, sex workers were not necessarily seen merely as an opportunity to indulge that vice. You know, a mere means to an end, at least not by reflective souls like Abbott. You know, let's remember that we just heard he wrote of them, they're human too. And he also adds here a thoughtful reflection on the double standard of the day. I've heard a lot about the double standard and seen a lot of it too, and it didn't make any sense for a man to get off so easy. If I'd have been a woman and done what I'd done, I'd have ended up in a sporting house. Sporting house. A brothel. So, at the same time that Abbott acknowledges and embraces the sexual license that he and his mates enjoyed on the frontier, privileges that they enjoyed as men, he also recognizes the complexity of that situation and looks beyond just his own perspective. He sees the plight of those with whom he dallied. Of course, not every cowboy was probably as thoughtful as him, but here at least we do see a hint of the nuance with which at least some of the frontier understood their world. Now, cowboys rebelled in other ways, too. One way of particular note was ignoring class distinctions in favor of merit by skill. Garceau writes, They did not accept Victorian class hierarchy. In their own oral and written tradition, cowboys repositioned themselves within a hierarchy of skill suited to range life. Out on the range, a man of wealth and breeding was only a tenderfoot. Tenderfoot, a newcomer, a greenhorn. In other words, cowboys turned the Victorian hierarchy of masculinities on its head. Whereas they had previously found themselves low on the totem pole, they flipped that around so that they ended up on top, and supposed proper men took a turn on the bottom. And they accomplished this by valuing skill, specifically the skills that aided survival out on the range. If you couldn't hack it out there, you were what they called a mail-order cowboy or a monkey-ward cowboy. You were all hat and no cattle, and they laughed you out of town. Mail-order cowboy, a tenderfoot. Monkey-ward cowboy, a tenderfoot. All hat and no cattle, a poser. So there you have it. That is the alternative masculinity that the cowboys created on the frontier. They flipped things around. They put themselves on top, and they put the Easterner on the bottom for a change. And that's how they made sense of their world and created a sense of self-esteem for themselves as men. And you know, that last part about the top-hatted you know, Easterner coming out to the frontier, that is actually a common trope in Western films and novels. The greenhorn Easterner who comes to town all pompous and monocled but proves himself just a bumbling buffoon when he gets out on the range. And so 
I guess that's actually one that the movies do actually get right. Good job, Hollywood. Score one for you. It's the last thing to note. Just to recapitulate some of the things that we said before and, and place it in context here of the alternative cowboy masculinity, let's remember that cowboys, you know, they rejected the shame that was attached to the unmarried life in the Victorian mindset. And they did this in the ways that we've already outlined. First, by developing social bonds with each other on the range, as bunkies, for example. And second, by entering into fictive marriages with the sex workers with whom they found so much in common, thumbing their noses at stuffy Victorian ideals and embracing an alternative culture of the range that was all their own. And yet, in the end, even Teddy Blue Abbott, who's been our trail guide this whole episode through, gave up this alternative lifestyle for traditional norms in the end. He got married to a decent young girl, as he describes her, a girl by the name of Mary, and he settled down. And he writes, And that, in a way, writes the end to my life on the open range. I wasn't a cowpuncher anymore. I took a homestead, milked cows, and raised a garden. I quit drinking threw my chewing tobacco away, quit what little gambling I ever done, and I started to save money. It shows you what a good woman will do for a man. So even Abbott repented his ways in the end. And yet, the very fact that he is writing about all this that we heard before, his whole youth, with such gusto, well, I think that kind of betrays a little bit of a wistful nostalgia for those early years in which he took on the traditional Victorian man and cleaned his plow. Clean his plow to give a good whooping. So there you go. That's the myth of the manly cowboy, measured against the actual historical cowboy. Turns out the image that we get from Western movies and novels, which lies at the heart of masculinity, yeah, not so accurate. The truth of the matter is the historical cowboy was less of a rugged individualist loner and more of a communalist with a poignant need for companionship. He was less of a heartthrob and was cast as more of a low-status chump in the Victorian hierarchy of masculinities, but he rebelled against that system and forged a masculinity of his own. We've been given a romanticized image of the cowboy, but now we've got it nailed to the counter. Nailed to the counter! Proven a lie. Now, that is not necessarily to say that there's no value in the cowboy mythos. That's a whole other question entirely. A myth can still be a valuable guide to life, even if it's not perfectly historical. Nevertheless, we can say for certain that as a guide to history, it's about as handy as hip pockets on a hog. Handy as hip pockets on a hog. Worthless. Serving no purpose. Well, folks, that's all I've got for you today. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. We've got more episodes coming up in this series in which we'll look at women, Native Americans, cross-dressers on the American frontier. We're probably going to do an episode maybe just on African Americans in the frontier. And I'm going to try to get the next one out in a month, as usual. But honestly, 
I've been struggling, as I said, and so if it's not on time, bear with me, folks, it's coming. If you like what we're doing on this show here, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a rowdy wrangler having a hog-killing good time at the brothel, or a gentle buddy bedding down with a bunkie. Or whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, folks, I will see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.